This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. In the comedic spy thriller Argyle, a reclusive author gets sucked into a web of danger and intrigue when her books mirror the inner workings of a rogue spy agency. Argyle is full of globetrotting action with more twists than you can count and a cat named Alfie in a bubble backpack. I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Stephen Thompson. Today we are talking about Argyle on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining us today is NPR producer J.C. Howard. Hey, J.C. Hello, hello. And also with us is co-host of Slate's ICYMI podcast and former PCHH producer Candace Lim. Hey, Candace. Hi. It is a pleasure to have you both. So, Argyle is the latest film from Matthew Vaughn, who directed Kick-Ass and the Kingsman movies, and it's loosely tied to the Kingsman cinematic universe. The film stars Bryce Dallas Howard as an anxious recluse named Ellie Conway, who's written a series of best-selling spy thrillers about a handsome secret agent named Argyle. But as she's wrapping up the latest installment, she's set upon by a small army of killer spies and protected by another spy named Aiden, played by Sam Rockwell. It turns out, and we are only scratching the surface here, that Ellie's books closely mirror a real-life search for a thumb drive containing valuable information. The bad guys want it, the good guys want it, the good guys and the bad guys are hard to tell apart, you know the drill. So Ellie and Aiden take off with Ellie's cat strapped to her back and try to stay one step ahead of all the assassins and henchmen, not to mention a ruthless kingpin played by Brian Cranston. The film Argyle was written by Jason Fuchs, who loosely based it on a very new book, also called Argyle, which came out just a few weeks ago. That book is by a first-time author named Ellie Conway, about whom little is known. In fact, her identity is so mysterious that conspiracy theories inevitably popped up to suggest that the author herself is none other than Taylor Swift, a theory vigorously disputed by the filmmakers themselves, and, if I may editorialize, definitely not true. Argyle is in theaters now. JC, I'm going to start with you. What did you think of Argyle? It was a ride. <laughs> to, to quote the good and the great Candace Lim, oh God. the movies are back. <laughs> I'm hyped. And, and to be sure, for better or worse, look, I went in expecting a fun spy movie, and what I got was a movie that's equal parts spy thriller and rom-com. Hmm. I don't mean like it's a spoof or a parody of a spy flick. It's a proper spy movie, complete with twists and reveals, arguably too many twists and reveals, uh, big action scenes, characters to root for and against. Mm-hmm. I mean mm-hmm. that literally, I, because in the screening that I was in, sitting next to me was a woman who was having a full-on dialogue with the characters on screen. So like she was literally rooting <laughs> for and against them as we sat there. And I rewatched the first Kingsman film, which was directed by Matthew Vaughn, Mm -hmm. I feel like that movie summed up his thesis on making spy films because in it, two characters talk about how they like spy movies, but they complain that spy movies are always so serious. And I think Argyle aims to correct that because Argyle could never be accused of taking itself too seriously. Mm. I will say some of the exposition late in the movie feels like exposition and verges on convoluted, but Of course, it's a spy movie, so, like, convoluted 
exposition is kind of part of the ball game. I, I think the third act drags a little bit, and the CGI cat is sometimes actively painful mm. to watch for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but all in all, mm-hmm. this is the most relaxing thriller I think I've ever seen. Huh. It's edge of your seat a little bit, but it's also sight gags and jokey for sure. So, I mean, I enjoyed it. All right. How about you, Candace? I mean, in the words of Catherine O'Hara, it's edge of your toilet. Mm, that's right. That's right. So this was a spy musical, right? <laughs> and none of the musical is done by Dua Lipa except for dancing. We can rate that dancing later. But I am lukewarm on this movie. I think the reason I was interested in Argyle is because the trailer gave me vibes of two movies I love. Mm-hmm. Spy. Mm-hmm by Melissa McCarthy, Uh, Lost City Uh with Sandra Bullock uh and Channing Tatum. And Mm -hmm. I think the DNA is definitely there. You know, these are two movies that did a lot Mm -hmm. to push their genres forward while putting women of a certain age at the center as like action heroes. There's a lot of similarities. Sandra Bullock also plays an author hunted down by bad guys and spy. Melissa is like a desk jockey who just like randomly at some point in the movie has spy physicalities, as Bryce does. <laughs> so I feel like I should have liked this movie. I mean, JC, you touched on the rom communist. I would say it's dialed down, but it kind of exists. Yeah. But I think my issue with the movie mm-hmm. is the meta-ness started losing me pretty quickly because mm-hmm. I think this is a movie with twists, some of which are very cheesy. But if you ride with it, you have to keep track of like, this person is actually this person who actually wants to kill this person or this person. And that legwork kind of took me out of the experience. So that's why I can't even say this is a good movie watching experience for me a hundred percent. But, you know, this is from the Kingsman world. I have only watched the Pedro Pascal one, (laughs) Golden Circle. And I don't think this is like the female Kingsman. I just don't think that this movie successfully writes women the way Spy and The Lost City did. And so overall, I don't think this is the greatest spy movie. I don't think this is the greatest commentary on how writing a book is like being in the CIA. (laughs) But... I will give it up for two things. The first one being the music. I like the music. I think it drove the set pieces and I really liked Sam Mm. Rockwell in this. And so without his chemical banter with Bryce Dallas Howard, this movie would have no legs. They were such an anchor for me. And so if anything, this movie is worth it for Sam Rockwell, witty spy turn. All right. How about you, Glenn? You know, about an hour, hour 15 into this movie, I turned to my dear friend and colleague, Chris Klimek, uh, Discerning critic, pal for life, recurring beloved panelist on this very podcast. And I asked him a question and I whispered it out of deference to the people around us. <laughs> so I turned to my dear friend, Chris, and I says to him, Chris, I says, uh, is this movie, the one we're watching right now, the one unspooling before our eyes, does it turn out that this movie is actually <laughs> freaking terrible? No, I didn't use the word freaking. I used a different word, but that's what I asked him. And he nodded, which made me feel good and sane and right with the world. I mean, I think to call this movie incredibly, wildly inept might be overstating, but brother, it ain't inept. <laughs> Let me tell you that much for free. I think this is really sloppy, lazy filmmaking. It's sometimes easy to miss that because it is pitched at such a frenetic, shrill, the word I keep coming back to, Stephen, is strained, strained mm. level. And as much as we can talk about the screenplay, and I hope we do talk about the screenplay, I place this firmly at the feet of director Matthew Vaughn. And the reason I do that is because mm. – There are actors in this movie that I love, actors who come from very different backgrounds, who have very different approaches to their work and such have very different kind of on-screen appeal. And I think they are unilaterally drained of any kind of life the moment this Mm -hmm. camera hits them. And and that's why I'm blaming the director. I think this film is the elephant graveyard of on-screen charisma (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, I disagree, Candace. Do you know how much work you have to do to take Sam Rockwell? Singular, one-of-a-kind actor, known for making big, big choices and suck any and all traces of idiosyncrasy and spark from him. Mm. You cast Catherine O'Hara and you don't let her off the damn leash at all. In a bad wig. Mm -hmm. Call the Hague, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yeah, and yeah. I just thought these two leads did not have any chemistry whatsoever. I just felt this film was a mess that made me angry. <laughs> I didn't see Mordecai. I didn't see The Love Guru, but I felt like I don't need to now because I've seen this movie. I'm, I'm having trouble sensing how you felt about yeah. it, Glenn. I, uh, I'm not sure. Kind of on the fence is what uh, I'm hearing. Is that what it is? No, he jumped. No, he jumped. <laughs> yeah, I jumped over that damn fence. Wow. Um, that's harsh. <laughs> I landed firmly in between y'all. Yeah. Okay, so I, I just saw the movie Night Swim. What aggravated me about Night Swim was that Night Swim is a movie about a haunted swimming pool that then kept dialing it back. Mm -hmm. Instead of just like going all in on being a silly movie about a haunted swimming pool, it like kept wanting to be subtle which ended up completely wasting a bonkers premise. As I watched this, I thought a little bit about Night Swim, and I thought to myself, like, at least this movie commits. This movie commits to being very silly, very over the yeah. top. I don't think it's particularly successful. Mm -hmm. I came out kind of mixed to negative, but I appreciated that this film was at least trying to be big in weird and splashy ways. I think there are a couple of action set pieces late in this film, one of which is at least weird to look at, and one of which is one of the stupidest, most ridiculous scenes I've seen in a movie in years. And at least it made me feel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we have feelings. We're feeling yeah, feelings. Like a poke in the eye, it made me feel. <laughs> it, it wasn't for me a poke in the eye. I did think it was easily 40 minutes too long. Yeah. And I do share Glenn's frustration with how this film deployed wonderful character actors. Not so much mm -hmm. the Bryce Dallas Howard and Sam Rockwell, who I thought were fine. I was so frustrated because this thing would keep trotting out like, hey, it's Richard E. Grant. Yeah. And then they right. just let that Maserati idle in the garage and then he's gone. Yeah. Rob Delaney. Yeah. Rob Delaney for no reason. Oh. Give him nothing yes. funny to say and yes. then he is gone. Mm -hmm. You're making a funny spy movie and you can't think of anything funny for Rob freaking Delaney to say? Yeah. I, I found that very, very frustrating. Yeah. I, I feel at this point as though I must defend <laughs> to the death my, my choice because listen, I, I, I will say that the criticism is very much well-deserved on this movie's part. But for me, it was fun. You know, like, I mean, to be sure, it is far from a perfect movie. The action set pieces in that third act is what bring it down a lot for mm -hmm. me. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. not very much into action uh, scenes like they I find them very predictable mm -hmm. boring I usually tune out but as Candace mentioned the music that is used mm. during that during those set pieces really draws me back in and it's like okay you know I could have tuned out if they just used some random score but this is a dance piece mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the choreography is ridiculous <laughs> um, and to be sure in that third act those action scenes were just like way too long and pretty much unnecessary. They were kind of comedy action scenes and I did not enjoy them, so to speak. <laughs> but by and large, like if I'm thinking about would I watch this movie again? Would I watch it with like some other people to be sure so that we could kind of laugh at it and ridicule it? But I think that's where the movie kind of is its own strength to be sure 
but it's it's that I think that the movie delights in laughing at itself. I don't think that it's meant to be a James Bond or a run of the mill spy thriller. It's more saying like, look, let's laugh together at how ridiculous these can be, but also saying like, let's drive the plot and like make it into its an actual thing and not just a joke. All right, let me just say this: I was for a brief moment happy watching this film when I realized that money was spent on this film, but not as much money as could have been because clearly they weren't spending money to go on location. <laughs> right. That French vineyard yeah. was so fake looking oh, and that God. sunlight was so flat <laughs> and characterless. It could only have been shot against a green screen on some soundstage in West London. And I was happy about that. <laughs> but then yeah. I got home and double checked. Yeah. And yeah, this production actually sent some background photographers to Greece expressly to take some like background shots. Wow. And why? Why? <laughs> why send a photographer to Greece if you're going to turn it into this fakey yeah. digital Disney ex- Polar Express yeah. Uncanny Valley souvenir shop version of Greece? I was angry again. <laughs> I was freshly incensed. So let's talk a little bit about Matthew Vaughn's role in this because – There was something I noticed, and I want to take your temperature on this. You know, there is this kind of cheesy storytelling device where Ellie does this thing where she just, like, blacks out. Mm -hmm. And she just, like, wakes up randomly, and she transitions from one scene to the next, whatever. And those, plus the action set pieces to me, were kind of shot like a video Mm -hmm. game. They reminded me of, like, first-person shooter games where Sam Rockwell is talking to the camera, looking right at you, saying, hold my gun. And it almost feels like you're, like, an 80 on this project. But did it? help your experience? Did it make you guys feel like you were a part of this? Because I do think a big appeal for action movies and specifically spy thrillers is feeling like you're in them, like feeling like you and Vin Diesel are family, you know? I don't know. I mean, I feel as though this is middle of the road from my expectation. I think that's maybe that's part of it is that I walk into movies that I know are going to be big CGI vehicles with the expectation that I'm going to see a lot of bad CGI. And to be sure, that expectation was very much met. Mm -hmm. That's not what Mm -hmm. I'm there for. I'm there for like whatever story they're going to tell after the bad CGI. Because as I've said, like these action sequences are not for me. Mm -hmm. It'll also be true of of most other action movies. It's like we're going to get some bad CGI. Here's the thing. I think when you talk about those action set pieces It is fair to say that, like, the CGI took you out of it. I think for me what it is is the supporting characters who kind of get thrown in here and taken out. I mean, I want to talk about Dua Lipa. (laughs) Because something that doesn't exactly click for me is that there is this banner poster of the Argyle marketing. And in the front and center, it is Henry Cavill, one over its Dua Lipa. Bryce and Sam are, like, down the line. And Dua Lipa... You know, she got her check. She came in. She said five lines. She didn't sing. And that is it. Henry Cavill, I can't make the argument that he is doing much much more than that. I don't know. Did you guys feel like there were supporting characters that you loved and actually should have spent more time on? Because for me... I love John Cena. He knew exactly what movie he was in. Yes. He was the only person who yes. did. Yeah. I would say even Sam and Bryce didn't click in the way he did. I'm sure that's true. I think there's a reading 
of this film, where that's part of the spoof, where you introduce a major actor and take them off the screen within three minutes. Like, I think that, that can be read as spoof or satire. Uh, the reason I don't agree with that reading is because satire has a point of view. This movie does not have a point of view. Spy, you mentioned, had a point mm-hmm. of view. Also, I'm sorry, but when the climax of a film has to do with uploading a file and we're watching the <laughs> oh percent progress God. bar, that oh does God. not feel like clever subversion to me. That is just tired. And one thing I want to point out is that in the production notes, and I'm not trying to throw the flack who wrote this under the bus, but in the production notes, we learn that Vaughn was inspired to make this movie because during lockdown, he decided to, quote, stage a film appreciation class for his wife, Claudia Vaughn, they shiver, mm. and their two daughters who were around 10 and 15 years old at the time, unquote. Mm-hmm. What leaps out at me is not like, hey, let's watch some films, guys. It is stage a film appreciation class. <laughs> For his wife and daughters. This film was grounded in mansplaining, and this film Mm -hmm. is fruit of the poison tree, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. (laughs) Clearly not written by a woman. Because I will say this about the Kingsman universe. Yeah. The set design here, I think, very much fits into that universe in that... Kingsman is really all about dudes sitting in leather chairs yeah. in leather rooms <laughs> wearing rooms. really nice suits. It is about masculinity seen and felt. They use that here. The motifs are there. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like that actually brought down Ellie's development. I'm like, you are placing her in these scenarios where you don't know how to write her and you don't really know how to place her in this world where, by the way, she she writes a book where she places herself as Henry Cavill, like he is her avatar. And that was another curious decision too, where I was like, huh, could that have been an opportunity to like cast like a woman lead in this and put her in the action seat instead of Henry, who I have to say, I think is the most predictable casting choice here. At the end of the day, what I really think this was, was a vehicle Mm -hmm. for the Kingsmen franchise to take over for Marvel. And is this just kind of a bridge to that Terabithia, unto which I will not yeah. walk, by the way. I will not yeah. walk. <laughs> this is definitely Matthew Vaughn's attempt to make a, a proper multi-property franchise, which honestly, barf. <laughs> <laughs> Even JC is not down with this. I'm, I'm good with this as a one-off. I'm good with this as maybe even a movie with a larger-than-life sequel, which I don't know how you would go up from here. But mm. I would certainly not be into a shared universe. That's not that's not my bag. All right. Well, we want to know what you think about Argyle. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH. Up next, what is making us happy this week? Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Hulu.
Dive into the chilling new Hulu original series, Under the Bridge, the riveting adaptation of the acclaimed true crime book. Based on shocking true events, Under the Bridge tells the haunting story of a murder that lays bare a small community's darkest secrets. Go deep into the hidden world of the town's tormented teenagers as detectives race to solve the sinister crime. Starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays, only on Hulu. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Candace Lim, what's making you happy this week? So March 25th is coming up, and we all know that this year is the ninth anniversary of Zayn Malik leaving One Direction. We all know where we were. God tested us, and I tested him back. I have just kind of been in this like hyperfixation chamber of listening to 1D albums, the solo eras, listening to podcasts about the albums and solo eras. And there is one that came out in November of 2023 that I think is really good. It's called mm-hmm. One Direction, A Fan Story. It is a BBC podcast hosted by Maddie Grace Jepsen, written and produced by Grania Morrison. And it is this beautiful retelling of the rise of One Direction from the view of a grown-up directioner. It is eight episodes. They're no longer than 20 minutes, which is great. And do you ever feel like you're listening to something and you're like, oh, I wish mm-hmm. I made this? Yeah. It's so well-produced. It is like sound-rich, archival tape-heavy. It is high energy. And I love that the BBC put like real great production behind something that was a very real and like visceral, emotional, time-consuming thing in a teen's life, mine included. <laughs> and it's really interesting to hear it from a British perspective because I'm American and so I only know this as an export but they know this as homeland and so thanks to this podcast I have been replaying all discography and I would like to use this platform to say justice for Change Your Ticket which is a bonus track off my favorite album of 1D's four. Mm -hmm. So that's what's making me happy. The podcast, One Direction, a fan story. You can find it on the BBC website. Wonderful. Thank you, Candice Lim. JC Howard, what's making you happy this week? So the thing that's making me happy this week is the Artful Dodger on Hulu. It's not at all something I would have expected to like based on just the surface level description, which is it is a spinoff of the 19th century Dickens novel, Oliver Twist. Mm -hmm. But as Mm -hmm. it happens, I am very into it. Mm -hmm. For those who are unfamiliar, Jack Dawkins, or the Artful Dodger, as he's also called, is a pickpocket. And he's a friend of Oliver Twist. And in the novel, he introduces Oliver to Fagin who's one of the book's antagonists. Mm -hmm. And the show takes place about a decade after the novel. And in it, Dawkins has left behind his life of crime, and he's in Australia, using his nimble fingers for good as a surgeon, till, of course, Fagin shows up and lures him back into a life of crime. It is a period drama, and it's kind of a romance. So Victorian-era Australia, scheming, plotting, capers, uh, and also a reminder that there was a time that a minor surgery was life-threatening. Yeah. Anyway, it's a, it's a very good show that stars Thomas Brody Sangster, oh. David Thewlis, and Maya Mitchell. So far, it's just one season, and it's all out now. Uh, again, that's The Artful Dodger on Hulu. Wonderful. Thank you, J.C. Howard. Glenn Weldon, what's making you happy this week? 
The Max stand-up special, Leo Reich, Literally Who Cares, came out in December. It's great. He's great. His stand-up persona is he's kind of a preening, self-obsessed young queer man who is convinced of his own, you know, trailblazing importance. He's kind of playing up this whole youthful disaffection thing. Like he's wearing it like a coat. So it becomes very quickly a pointed critique of exactly that kind of uh, influencer culture vibe. Yeah. So in other words, he's playing dumb very smartly in the way that people like John Early and Kate Berlant and especially in his early stand-up, Joel Kim Booster used to do, you know, that whole hot idiot vibe. Mm. There's also in the in the special some music. So there's just enough Bo Burnham in there, <laughs> kind of peeking around the corner, not too much and not enough to feel unoriginal, right? He has his own voice. And I'm trying to sum up his vibe here by comparing him to other people because I very much do not want to spoil a single one of his jokes. They are solid. They are extremely well written. They're well delivered. And mostly they feel like things that could only work coming out of his mouth, which is the goal. And he's already there. So I'm looking forward to getting a lot more from this guy. That is Leo Reich, R-E-I-C-H, literally who cares on Max. Wonderful. Thank you, Glenn Weldon. What is making me happy this week is the kind of thing I normally think I hate, <laughs> which is a YouTube channel starring a bunch of YouTubers. <laughs> and ordinarily, I find YouTuber energy to be capital T, capital M, too much. Uh -huh. <laughs> but I have gotten greatly sucked in to a wonderful series on YouTube and Nebula called Jetlag the Game. Huh. They basically... Uh, take a territory of the world and turn it into a board game. It is, think like the amazing race, but with two teams competing against each other to go from one place to another. And they've got other variations on that game. There's a version where they play Connect Four by traveling to actual states in the U.S. They play a 72-hour game of tag across Europe. It is sort of a travelogue combined with a strategy game, combined with YouTubers capering around doing silly challenges it's created and hosted by three guys, Ben Doyle, Adam Chase, and Sam Denby. I am completely sucked in and really enjoying this. And God help me, I don't know if I'm going to have to watch more YouTubers, <laughs> but I really, really enjoyed it. And that's Jetlag the Game. You can find it on YouTube and you can find it on Nebula. That is what is making me happy this week. If you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. That brings us to the end of our show. Glenn Weldon, Candace Lim, JC Howard, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This episode was produced by Hafsa Fathima and edited by Mike Katzif and Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Stephen Thompson, and we will see you all next week. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. 
what does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.